0: Welcome to the Big Drink Rethink podcast with me, your host, Anna Donaghy. If you've noticed that the drinking culture in the UK is changing and you're curious about why and what this means to your world, then this is the podcast for you. Throughout this series, I will be chatting with the thought provoking, forward thinking people at the heart of this shift to find out what makes them tick and to explore the sober curious perspective from all angles. And I'll also be giving you oodles of personal tools and tactics to help you get on board the Big Drink Rethink. So I'm very excited to be welcoming today's guest, not least because I've realised that we went to the same school, which is pretty cool, albeit not at the same time. And I'm afraid that's where the academic parallels firmly stop, because David Nutt is a professor. In fact, David is the Professor of Neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College London, which is as impressive as it is hard to say. David is also former chair of the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs and current chair of Drug Science, which is a charity that researches and tells the truth about all drugs, be they legal or illegal. David is also author of the very excellent book Drink The New Science of Alcohol and Your Health. And in this book, it becomes really clear as to why his flavor of independent and uncensored science-based research is so important. David, welcome! It's absolutely lovely to have you here.
1: Yes, it's good to be talking to you too. And uh, it must have been many years after me that you went to our school. We definitely weren't any girls there for a very long time.
0: No, no, they weren't. They weren't letting my sort in then. Um, That was that was a few years later, I think. But no, thank you so much for coming on. I've been really keen to talk to you about your work. Obviously it it extends well beyond the sort of profound and far reaching impact that alcohol has on our health Mm -hmm. to also look at its impact on society. And whilst we know that the culture is shifting Mm -hmm. and beginning to evolve, I think it's also pretty safe to say that we are starting off from a very entrenched place. Um, We're always held up and not necessarily in a good light by other cultures. We are a country of big boozers. And I just wanted to kind of ask you your views on how how it became so, how, how it became this way. Was there a, a tipping point? Um, what happened?
1: Well, um, alcohol is part of Western culture and has been for thousands of years. Alcohol has been part of human culture, really, since the first recorded evidence we have of humans. And there is this wonderful theory that um, humans started to cultivate wheat and barley, not to make bread, but to make beer. Uh, and of course, settling down of humans in, in agricultural communities, which led to the growth of many of the other uh, advances in, in civilization, because if people were stuck in one place, they could talk to more people, they could do, learn to do things like write and uh, and weave, et cetera. So. So it may well be that uh, alcohol has been part of the, um, the human existence, the human uh, culture for, since a very, very long time. But of course, it's persisted, and it's persisted for two reasons. It's persisted at a prosaic level because until about 150 years ago, most water wasn't fit to drink. So people used to drink what was called small beer, which is less than 2% beer, but the brewing of that beer Meant that most of the bugs in the water were killed. So children were brought up drinking beer because it was the only safe thing to drink. And then the second reason, of course, it's alcohol has um, persisted, is because it is actually the the ultimate social drug. It gets people together. It allows people to come together, overcome their anxieties, their fears, celebrate births, deaths, weddings, etc. And uh, it's not been superseded. So alcohol plays a you know a very important uh, role in our social life as well as uh, it did until, as they say, about 150 years ago in our physical life. So it's been hard to dislodge because it's been it's embedded in our culture, and of course it's embedded in in some aspects of of Christian culture. Wine is still used as part of the sacrament, so it's so very interwoven. You might say you might say it's kind of it's dissolved. Alcohol dissolved into human culture.
0: Yeah, no, that's a really good way of putting it. And I guess, I mean, one of the things that's obvious is it's you know it is so entrenched. It, it's it's literally everywhere. All of our subcultures as well, from you know sports cultures to work cultures, university culture. Um, it's 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 prevalent. It's ubiquitous. It's it's pretty much everywhere.
1: Yeah, that's one of the reasons for that, Anna, is because it's the only only legal drug apart from tobacco, and uh, tobacco has definitely fallen out of favour because tobacco is not a social drug, as you know. Nicotine is, a, is it's a a drug. It's it's about keeping people focused and relaxed, but it's not it's not a social drug. Except, I mean, of course, it, it was used socially, and Native Americans, you know, he used to pass the peace pipe around. But we we've corrupted smoking to become a very individual, personal uh, mm. drug. So the only other- Alcohol. Now, in cultures that are changing, like where you see the rise of cannabis, for instance, uh, you see that people are switching, even in social events, from uh, from alcohol to to cannabis because uh, they don't like some of the negative consequences of alcohol, like uh, like ang- <laughs> aggression, and hangovers, etc. But up till now, it is pretty much as all we've had to use in in those different situations that you mentioned.
0: Is there a point, David, that you know probably not an exact point but is there a an era in the evolution of alcohol in this country where we potentially created you know a tipping point where it became because we have a we have a sort of a an image of binge drinking we have a high volume fast drinking party culture image around alcohol that sometimes it's held up against some of our you know, European counterparts to say, well, they, they've got it right. They have a more languid approach to alcohol. They have a more relaxed, temperate approach towards alcohol. And we're just crazy. Is, is there a point in time when that became so for particular reasons?
1: Well, we actually, to be honest, we're not that different from other European countries. I mean, obviously the, the, the Latin countries tend to drink wine and they drink with meals, but all the Northern European countries tend to drink like we drink, which is to go out and get drunk and, uh, Suffer the consequences. Some people think that's because the Vikings spread their genes all around the uh, the Atlantic seaboard. Um, there have been several, you know, serious convulsions in drinking behaviour. I mean, actually, the first, most obvious one was in the um, in the First World War when uh, there was a massive curtailment of drinking, and that's when actually the the licensing laws were brought in. Up to the second after the First World War, people, pubs could be open all the time. And, and then they brought in um, closing times, massively reduced consumption in order to make sure that particularly people in the in the military industry would get to work the next day. And then drink, drinking rose again to the Second World War, and then it fell, uh, and it began to increase after the Second World War, but pretty slowly. And the really big change in the UK occurred in in the the nineteen nineties when uh, drink was taken out of. Pubs. It used to be that you could only drink in what was called a licensed premise. You could either drink in a pub or an off-license. And that you know those were manned or served by people that knew about drinking. And then, in his infinite lack of wisdom, John Major allowed corner shops, supermarkets to sell booze with a view that it would change the culture of drinking, which it certainly did because it doubled the amount we drank. Uh, and, uh, and we've been paying the price of that ever since. But also the other factor we've got to take into consideration is that the, the price of, the tax on alcohol has effectively been reducing for the last 50 years. I mean, alcohol now is about a third the price in real terms as it was when I was uh, 18 allowed to drink. And uh, that's facilitated people drinking an awful lot more because it's basically cheaper.
0: So essentially, you've got you've got the double whammy there of it becoming much easier to come by, much more readily available, and very very accessible based on relatively cheap prices, um, and clearly clearly those factors are going to drive consumption up.
1: I mean, it is kind of weird, isn't it? And that's one of the reasons the Scottish government brought in minimum pricing a few years ago. The idea that you can go into a supermarket and buy. Yeah, an eight percent cider, two liters of eight percent cider for less than the price of two liters of water. It tells you we kind of got it wrong, and no rational person would ever try to justify that. But it just there was just slippage, and there was a lack of logic in the laws. And I mean, to be fair, one probably the only thing this current Tory government done is actually rectified that anomaly because now it's going to it's going to tax alcohol according to the alcohol content rather than the, the the name cider or beer or, or, or wine they're beginning to to be more rational but it's been a long time coming for many people of course it's too late
0: and of course you you talk about the um the, the fact that it is the most social drug um and, and obviously this is at the heart of its popularity can you explain to us from your sort of scientific side of things what is it about it that makes it a drug a sociability drug a drug that promotes sociability or makes you feel more sociable
1: well what alcohol does essentially is it dampens down social anxiety humans are genetically predisposed to be slightly anxious of other people it,
0: mm.
1: it's kind of to be slightly distant than over familiar because if you're over familiar they might be enemies and they might stab you in the back or in the front or whatever. So so we're all, we're all a little bit cautious about meeting other people. And alcohol, by increasing a transmitter in the brain called GABA, dampens down that anxiety and allows us to socialize. And that, of course, is why when we have parties where we meet strangers, we are, most parties these days are lubricated with, with, with alcohol because it helps us become relaxed and convivial and sociable.
0: So when I'm talking, you know, within my coaching, I, I, I talk to obviously lots of people who say exactly what you've just said, basically, David, I, I, I drink because it makes me feel more socially confident. It makes me feel funny, it makes me feel funnier. It makes me feel uh, more courageous, which again, um, is often in the sort of the day-to-day sense of the word, it's the, the courage to stand up in front of a lot of group of people, the courage to walk into a, a, a full room, The courage to do presentations, etc.
1: Yep, the old Dutch courage. Yes, alcohol has been widely used in warfare. In fact, the British Navy was uh, kept functioning on a rum ration until I think I think the nineteen sixties, wasn't it?
0: So that yeah, so that totally obviously makes sense. And and also, my, my my background is in the advertising industry, and like any industry, it's you know it's an industry that's quite soaked in alcohol. I often hear as well that you know. People in that industry will drink because they will say that alcohol makes them more creative, um, that there is an aspect of creativity that is facilitated by alcohol. Now I've, I've always, I, I wanted to ask you about this because I've sometimes thought, yeah, that was very convenient for me to say as well. When I walked through the advertising industry, wanting to drink like a fish and, you know, and indeed drinking like a fish, I was able to say, Oh, well, it's just the industry and it's, it's the creative industry darling that's you know that's exactly uh, that's exactly what it's what it's there for is is there truth in that david
1: it's a very really interesting and challenging question experimentally it's hard to prove that alcohol makes people more creative but it, it i think it probably makes you more likely to share things which are a bit crazy so that you uh, you, you might be inhibited to share and it probably does Encourage the social communication, which might lead to creativity. I mean, there's a bit of res- recent research which is interesting. It shows that it a little bit of alcohol facilitates the learning of a language because you're you're less concerned about making mistakes, and and so many people become very inhibited and and, and hyper critical of themselves uh, when they're trying to do any learn any new skill that they actually f- often completely fail to do it. So there may be some you know, another interesting statistic is that I think five. Of the first six American Nobel Prize winners in literature, they were all alcoholics, and it, we don't know whether that was it. That actually was why they could write. It certainly contributed quite a bit to the content of their writing. But uh, so that's it's again, it's this classic thing about alcohol: it's a double-edged sword. It can it can facilitate, and it can damage. And for each individual, you've got to make a judgment of how to use it to. To get the good things and avoid the bad bits.
0: Yeah, no, indeed. Because when you purely on the face of it, when you think about it in terms of its um, enhanced sociability, enhanced creativity, you can, you know, you can begin to understand that there are there are perceived benefits, and you know, sociability, connectivity, connectedness, togetherness, cohesion, um, and and you know. Great ideas, great thought, creativity. This is the stuff that societies and sort of powerful cultures are built on.
1: I mean, here's the, one of the interesting his, historical uh, uses of alcohol was by the ancient Persians. Uh, and, and they had this um, strategy, a sort of two-stage strategy. The first is all get drunk of an evening and brainstorm and, and come up with What as many creative and wonderful plans as you could. And then the next morning sit down and deconstruct them and see if they still see if they still (laughs) hold up. Exactly. That's right.
0: Well I guess I mean to your to your point though, isn't it? If um if alcohol makes us less self conscious, more more likely to talk, more likely knowing that sort of spirit of no idea is a bad idea.
1: Yes. Yeah,
0: gives you gives you greater permission to sort of just speak freely in the in those situations. So yes, potentially there are clear benefits until alcohol goes into a sort of an area of misuse or overuse. I was interested in asking you that question because a lot more has been a lot more research has been conducted that looks into the harm and and particularly there, I guess, I'm talking about the health harm of alcohol than there has been of the social benefit. And I think people who want to criticize alcohol can point at the sort of the the social disruption and the antisocial behavior and you know the negative impact that it has on society but I just wanted to be you know fully rounded if you like in in considering that for you know for many people they believe that the upsides the benefits are are worth it.
1: Well the majority of adults in this country drink
0: Mm.
1: the majority are not badly harmed by it and they're not they're not drinking because they're dependent. They're drinking because it does give them something, and, and that's the point I make in my book. It, 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 most people drink to get benefits. I mean, there are obviously some at the extreme who who drink because it helps them do unpleasant. You know, people drink to get drunk so they can fight. Or, you know, that's that's a small subgroup, but it exists. Um, and there are people who drink because they're dependent, and and that's yeah, you know, that's unfortunate and, and, and problematic. But the vast majority of people who drink, drink because they they get something from it. And what we should all be doing when we're drinking is evaluating what we're getting from drinking. And as I say in my book, you you should never drink a drink that doesn't give you something positive. And if we just did that, if people just did that, monitored their drinking and only drank when it got uh, a good effect, that would markedly reduce the amount people drank and reduce the harms of alcohol.
0: No, that makes total sense, and I think you know certainly. Um, shortly, I'd love to talk about because you, you've got some great tips as well. You've got some uh, some great advice in your book as to as to how to exercise that um, and and have that sort of level of, of mindfulness. But I just want just just whilst we're still on the harms, when I was working my way out of my own alcohol problems, my own dependencies. I was genuinely shocked when I read or heard about the true impact of alcohol on my health. Now, I'm a reasonably intelligent person. And and like many people, I would know that there are harmful side effects to alcohol. But I didn't fully understand the extent. I genuinely didn't understand the degree to which it is linked with many, many different diseases and cancers, etc, etc, etc. I certainly didn't understand fully the links between alcohol and, and mental health. And and it, it felt like, the, you know, the penny dropped. I was getting lots of aha moments when I could link alcohol to the stress or the anxiety or, you know, the depression and, and just the exhaustion in my life, I suppose. It became clear to me because I read books like yours. It didn't become clear to me because it was presented to me by government or you know by the drinks industry obviously and, and, I, and I kind of found it I found it because I went digging for it but why is the onus on us to do that why isn't it more available why is it more independent authors like yourself who are bringing us that information
1: well there's it, been a, a sort of a diabolical collusion over the last 40, 50 years between the drinks industry and politicians. And uh, the drinks industry funds an enormous amount of political activity. It gives free booze to, to, in Parliament on a fortnightly basis. It, it uh, saturates the hospitality industry with free booze, and a lot of MPs get uh, freebies from the hospitality industry. They go on jollies, et cetera there's this very um, unhealthy relationship between the drinks industry and politicians. And of course, some of you will know this. I think there are six bars in parliament and they all serve booze at quite a low rate. cost. I mean, I always, I find it truly bizarre yeah, that people in our parliament, people can vote on an issue as important, for instance, as whether we go to war when they're drunk. I don't think any other government in the world allows booze in the government. And, um, you know, there are famous examples, you know, I think Pitt the Younger vomited behind the Speaker's chair once because he was so drunk, couldn't stand up. I mean, we in recent times there are MPs who've said, I couldn't vote because I couldn't stand. Because could, you have, in British Parliament, you've got to walk through the yes door or the no door. So the answer is, you know, booze and politics have been tightly entrenched and the drinks industry has fueled a lot of that. And also the, uh, it's not just the uh, the marketing industry that you are in, uh, the media, the media. I mean, I'm, you know, the, the drinks industry is extremely effective at giving the media free boost. So there's a collusion of people who like drinking and many who, many who are damaged by drinking who avoid confronting the realities. And uh, and the drinks industry has also been extremely effective at disinformation. And, and one of the... One, approach it's used is a is a really sophisticated and clever approach it it learned from the tobacco industry the tobacco industry lied and uh, and has since you know fallen foul of that lie and uh, and now no one believes anything they say but the drinks energy didn't actually lie what the drinks energy said is what well, it is complicated yes alcohol may cause some harms and obviously everyone knows about cirrhosis but look if you look at middle-aged men they may get less heart attacks if they drink some alcohol and so it's really complicated. And in fact, that complication was uh, was very effective. I don't know if I told you this story, but I, it, um, when Tony Blair came to power, he wanted to have a, a systematic review of drug laws across all drugs. And I was part of this committee and we, and we produced this wonderful report. It took about two years. And we produced this for, you know, each chapter a different drug. And then when, when the book got published, the alcohol chapter had been removed. And we said... Alcohol chapter, and the cabinet secretary said, "Well, um, we spoke with the drinks industry, and the drinks industry explained that there were health benefits of alcohol as well as health harms. So we decided to remove the chapter." We said, "What? You, you really? The drinks industry? You, you did what the drinks industry told you to do?" And they, they kind of said, "Yes." And then, you know, that's an example of the power of the drinks industry. But what we what we now know and why it's changed is that, that particular claim claiming, you know the red wine will give you better cardiovascular health that has now been really convincingly demolished and the truth is red wine is only good for your health if you actually sit in Provence and drink it there but if you drink it in Britain bring out of booze in Britain it doesn't help and uh, and so it, it, that was what we call a confounder something it was to do with probably the sunlight the vitamin D the omega-3 anti acids its diet so the reality is we now know that there is no Beneficial effect really of alcohol at any dose on any health measure, and we know there are a lot of downsides. So, so eventually science has come through, but still in Britain, the committee that looks advises the government on uh, alcohol policy, scientists we refuse to sit on it because the government, Tory government, which has been going now yeah for fifteen years, insists that fifty percent of the committee is the drinks industry and 50% of scientists, and we say that he's completely wow. ridiculous. You can't, you know, because that's what we would call a conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. But then, but Cameron and, you know, the people who followed him have refused to stand up to them. It may yet change. I mean, hopefully there will be an election, hopefully a different government, and, and when things change, then we will be, begin to bring in policies which have been shown in other countries to significantly reduce the harms and damage from alcohol.
0: Mm. I mean, it's, it's incredible, isn't it?
1: And those policies by the way which were instigated in France in the 1990s not only were really successful in reducing the harms of drinking they actually made the drinks industry more more profitable in France because people move from cheaper booze to more expensive booze and the drinks industry in Britain know that that is exactly the same what happened here but they their mindset is if we give an inch we've, we we will have conceded we were lying and people won't trust us again so they they're holding out even in the face of this overwhelming evidence that everyone would benefit if we had a more rational policy there was this wonderful statistic I, I think we dug out when we were doing this government report all those years ago and it's probably true today i think it the um, the drinks industry spends something like a hundred times more on drinks advertising than the health protection agency spends on telling people about the harms of alcohol maybe it's a thousand times yeah, more sure. i mean, it's just completely ridiculous
0: but you're, I mean, you're absolutely right, though, not to confine it to the world of advertising. It's it's media as a whole. I mean, I I, I was a child growing up in the 80s and um, 70s and 80s, and I used to watch Dynasty and mm. Dallas, and I, I look back now, and pretty much everything I've ever seen on television from those sort of first early memories will have glamorized um drinking whether it was jr coming back to the ranch mm. at the end of a hard day and pouring himself a scotch or sue ellen sat there boozing all day um from her cut glass you know her cut glasses and stuff there was literally every film every soap opera every western you know um it's it's everywhere
1: and it still is though I and mean, this is this is what's really disappointing i was watching a series on netflix last year mm. and like got completely obsessed with the fact that every, and it was mostly about women. Uh, I think it was you know, big little lies. And every single, apart from breakfast, thankfully, but every other meal, eating was, was was associated with consuming wine, which was present in the wine, from schooners. So people were drinking usually 200 or more mills, or they had in their glass 200 mils or more of wine at every meal and you know it's no surprise that the alcohol is now very soon it will be the leading cause of death in women under the age of 50 it's the leading cause of death in men under the age of 50 but but this association of, of success and glamour with with drinking wine has really captivated the, um, the, the, the you know the, the working women
0: No, I totally get that and i think it's it is it's it is it is that aspirational pitch of glamour, it's sophistication, it's, you know, drink this type of beer and you'll belong with this group of blokes, you know, drink this type of wine, you'll belong within this group of mums, you know, it, it's it's literally, and, and, and I, you know, I know very well how persuasive the advertising industry is, you know, whether or not we believe that we're absorbing these messages is absolutely by the by, we are. We are, we are subconsciously. This is why the budgets behind the, uh, you know, the spending are so darned high. Well, uh,
1: There's a new term which I think has only sort of emerged in recent years, but it's wine o'clock.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: When you, and any time's wine o'clock if you've got a friend around. Yeah, I mean.
0: Yeah. No. Exactly. Exactly. H- having said, obviously that this is this is the state of play with the um, this collusion between government and the drinks industry. Is it is it likely to change anytime soon? Is there, you know, if, if the culture is slightly shifting, is there is there anything in any small part that we can put down to to them, or is it just shifting of its own accord, and they're just going to sit put and do what they've always done?
1: I think the last uh, um, budget, the rescaling of taxation, particularly for things like ciders according to consumption, uh, sorry, volume of alcohol, mm. the weight of alcohol. That's a positive thing. I mean, I think the Scottish minimum unit pricing. I think Northern Ireland and Wales may well go down that route soon. That's a that's a really sensible policy, which has already shown to reduce the harms of um, of drinking in, in in both very heavy drinkers and also very young drinkers in Scotland. So I think those policies are have evi- enough evidence behind them that they should be brought in in uh, in England. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I I would hope that, that alcohol. Because the burden of alcohol is, well, it's the biggest health burden in Britain. It, alcohol causes more cost to the to the NHS than cancer, so you kind of think we ought to focus a bit on it. One of the problems been that uh, exchequers, chances the exchequer have tended to think, well, there's one good thing about the drinks industry; it does pay it, ta- it, it pays its taxes on time, so we do have a steady a steady income. And, and the fear is that if you reduce the profitability of the drinks industry, then you'd lose, um, the exchequer would quite rapidly lose a, a degree of income. But what they haven't taken into account, and that's what the Scottish minimum unit pricing data has shown us, is that the reducing alcohol consumption has an almost immediate effect on the harms of alcohol because so many people who are drinking heavily are very ill, and very ill people are very expensive when they're in hospital. So I think that argument is being made now, that we, a, a, a proportionate taxation to reduce consumption. And you don't have to reduce it. I mean, you know, the Scots targeted a 10% reduction with their minimum unit pricing, and that has a huge impact on the people who are most vulnerable. So so something like that, I think, could hopefully be brought in in the UK by the next government, yeah. assuming changes from Tory. Yeah.
0: And is it is it impossible to conceive of... Um, a time when alcohol goes the way of cigarettes. And I mean this obviously, let, let's be clear, cigarettes haven't been banned. Cigarettes are still available. They're just not allowed to advertise in the same way. Um, they're not allowed to glamorize. Um, they're not allowed to be associated with sort of partnerships and promotions and sponsorships and the such like. And clearly they they take up rather less obvious and visible shelf space. You have to go looking for it. And the checks on purchasing are obviously much, much greater. So no one's talking about banning alcohol. Um, but is there, you know, it, could, could, could we imagine those kind of measures coming in?
1: Well, the French, the French banned advertising. And the, the British government said, well, we can't do that because it would undermine our sports industry. And I say, well, hang on a sec. The, the French banned sport advertising of alcohol in, in the 90s and they've managed to win the uh, the football World Cup, and they've also been pretty good at the rugby. <laughs> yeah, the idea that you can't have sports teams without drink is actually ridiculous. So, so I, I would—the fact we haven't banned advertising of alcohol is a testimony to the to the behind-the-scenes power of the drinks industry, and and that surely has to come. I no no rational, honest government could defend continuing alcohol advertising. And of course, what they say, oh, alcohol advertising doesn't encourage people to drink; it just helps them decide what to drink. But as we all know, that is absolute rubbish. And in fact, there's very good evidence from research that's been done by colleagues of mine all over Europe that alcohol advertising has a powerful effect in initiating drinking in young people.
0: Of course it does. I mean, it. it of course it does. And, you know, if, if we weren't already, you know, a, a country marked out by the fact that we just seem to sort of hit 18 years of age and sort of segue into drinking as a rites of passage we're, we're already there in that mindset but what the advertising industry is doing is what's your brand what's your brand of alcohol what's your flavor of alcohol
1: of course everyone's got to drink so we, you yeah. know, you've got to choose what you are going to drink rather than think a bit as to whether you want to drink or not yeah exactly i mean it, it, they're clever as you pointed out <laughs> the, the, the top in the field
0: so as a, as a close observer as you, as you evidently are uh, through your work what, what what are the greatest signs that you you know what what are the biggest signs that you see that the alcohol culture is beginning to shift in the UK
1: well programs like yours mm-hmm. I mean this wouldn't you know this wouldn't be happening it wouldn't yeah. 10 15 years ago that's the first thing the second thing is, is yeah, younger people mean there are in the 20s and 30s are now we really, calibrating their relationship with alcohol there some of them are only drinking at weekends and some are not drinking at all and they're doing that for health reasons and then they're also doing it for reasons of productivity because they realize that uh, actually going to, well i mean put it, let me frame it another way I, when i graduated in medicine in 19 and then i graduated in 75 a couple of friends of mine from the same school as you went to went off to be accountants and um and then when in their training, you know, they went to work at nine in the morning. They went to the pub at twelve, and and they didn't do any work in the afternoons because everyone was drunk. You know, and that was that was the norm. You know, you just now that's changed. Uh, even in Paris, I remember the first time I went to Paris, I, I was staggered by by the two hour lunch I, I, as a scientist I was getting. in the, Now that's all gone. So I think we, you know, people are realizing that alcohol generally is something you want to avoid in the workplace because in the end it doesn't it does more good so i think we're we're going to see those shifts of the people becoming wiser and more mature and using alcohol as you should use it you should use it you know, to relax and be sociable rather than just as a way of swelling down food and, and falling asleep in the over your desk
0: yeah no absolutely i mean the i, I think the sort of the latest statistics that i had read was sort of the 16 to 24 year olds, sort of the the, the younger cohort that, that gets included in these kind of surveys, are drinking between sort of 25 or 30 percent less than you know the the 25 to 40 40 year olds, for example.
1: Yeah, and that's great, but unfortunately, it's not across the board. Mm. What you're seeing is that a lot aren't drinking at all, and, but and the but the ones who are drinking are often drinking a bit more. So you're getting a polarization of young people into those who are, are non-drinkers and those who are still heavy bingers.
0: yeah that's true and i, I think you know it, it's always um it's always interesting when you flip those and you say well great you know 25 percent are drinking none at all 75 percent are still drinking and they're drinking you know quite heavily but I, I suppose something that you were saying earlier david in the sort of um the evolution of alcohol the entrenchment thing you you also suggested that you know, you, you go through sort of peaks, different different drugs have their eras, different drugs have their time. Is there truth, do you think, in the fact that alcohol is their parents' drug and it's not their drug? Um, and actually, if you want to be really cool these days, if you want to be the ultimate rebel as a teenager, you don't drink because that's, that's what your mum does.
1: No, I, that's definitely true. And I think the other factor is on mobile phones, the ability to exposed as a in a completely embarrassing situation because you were drunk has actually put quite a few people off running the risk of that yeah <laughs> can,
0: no can, totally
1: raise that memory it will be, <laughs> it'll no, be I, in the, I, I, I
0: totally get that i think that's sort of the the immediacy with which you can lose your cool and and it be you know broadcast and 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 there for millions to see is is a massive
1: factor. I mean, people have told me things I've done when I've been drunk, but I've never believed them. But luckily, they didn't <laughs> couldn't take photos. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, I, it's uh, – so yes, I think that, that's a factor. But also, I, you know, the other thing is, I and mean, let's just, you know, be sensitive about this, I think people – we do have alternatives. It used, to, it used to be utterly uncool not to drink. You'd be pressured. In fact, you'd be ex- excommunicated from a peer group if you didn't drink. Uh, even you know, if you're, even if you're a sports person, you know, you're even a successful sports person, it was still. Now it's you know, there's much less stigma about not drinking, and there's alternatives as well. And uh, and uh, so I think you know, the the argument has been won. So you can defend yourself for not drinking quite quite reasonably now. I mean, it's still difficult. You still got to make the argument, but it, at least people people know that, that when you're saying that, it's it, you're talking. You know, you've got evidence behind it you know that alcohol is harmful
0: and I do see that in the people I, I I sort of speak with and work with um you know for for the younger for the younger generation i you know i, I have um experience of working with twenties sort of people in their twenties and and they're kind of like they're not when you sort of say to people, oh, why do you want to stop drinking and what are you afraid of you know what 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 are your fears about stopping drinking a lot of older people will say, all of my friends drink, all of my friends drink. And my greatest fear about not drinking is breaking, breaking those kind of, you know, bonds and connections and the glue of our, you know, of our social circles, being the one who forever sits on the fringes or doesn't, oh, hell, you know, doesn't even get invited anymore. Yeah, well, Whereas yeah. for people perhaps in their 20s, it's less about that because they know more people who don't drink, um, they may have their other reasons why they why they are drinking or why they might have got themselves into a bit of a pickle or whatever, but they're not they're not so afraid anymore of being the non-drinker. It's actually quite cool to be you know being being sober is quite cool. It is
1: you see less of the pe- people trying to force everyone to be drunk all the time. yeah I mean that, that pressure I think that's you know that's that's actually seen as being almost bullying now, I think, which is good.
0: yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's definitely got to be a bigger thing, hasn't it, to um to, to be moving in that way. So just thinking about the way that the drinks industry follows consumers, therefore, and sort of meets the demand of the consumers, if the young, this, this is probably too simplistic, but if the younger generation are drinking in a slightly different way or increasingly not drinking, uh, if they're more health conscious and uh, particularly mentally health conscious, I am assuming that we're going to see a drinks industry respond with different types of products and different types of um, either alcohol with benefits or functional drinks.
1: And the, the industry knows that the industry's flatlined; uh, it knows it's got to do something different. And uh, it's obviously the first thing it did was to move into to buying up the non-alcohol alcohol alternatives like like seed lip and that, which have they do give people the opportunity to have something in their hand and. And to look as if they're drinking, but uh, but as you know, you know I, that, that's not—they're not ideal because they don't give people what they, they used to get from alcohol, and uh, which is why we've been working trying to develop a functional drink that you know actually gives gives the beneficial effects of alcohol, but with much much reduced negative effects. Yeah.
0: yeah so talk talk to me about this because this is something which has got to sound like a good thing. I was thinking about this, eating my cornflakes this morning, and I can't, you know, I was sort of struggling to think of a downside to a drink that can give you the sociable upside of alcohol without the health issues. So I was kind of like, why hasn't this been done sooner?
1: (laughs) Well, yes, exactly, because uh, I think because people thought it couldn't be done, Uh, there was no need to do it. People thought the drinks industry would destroy it. And we've kept it out of the hands of the drinks industry at present because we um, we didn't want to be sucked up and swat out. You know, we wanted to make sure that whatever everything we did could be would still be available long after we've gone. So, but uh, and it was not it's not a trivial thing to do. It took us several years to to find the right cocktail of, of food accepted herbs to make the drink, and uh, and then another couple of years to turn those into a palatable drinks. So it was a lot of investment. Uh, we still haven't recouped all that yet, but we are selling it, it's called Sentia. There's two forms, a red form and a black form, and hopefully next year there'll be a gold form coming along. So so we've kind of proved that, we've proved it works, we, you know, and we're collecting data now showing that it does work as we predicted through the GABA system like alcohol. So, so I think, you know, maybe it's, we are in the start of a, of a new era, and we're not the only ones. I mean, there are other, there's a three spirits have gone down the same route using a, a different, kind of herbal approach and in america there's a drink called kin which is also, which uses also different kinds of herbs we've very much targeted the science of alcohol trying to mimic that effect of the first drink on the GABA system uh, yes yeah, so far so good i mean you know let's spread the word hopefully you will
0: yeah well exactly i mean so just so and, and to that point just to be clear then what we're what we're talking about here is the the drinks the 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 alcohol alternative the sort of new technology of GABA based drinks so GABA labs is obviously an enterprise that you're involved in but because of all your inherent knowledge it's something that you've said you know let's not just let, let's not just throw mud <laughs> At alcohol, let's not just let's find a very, very viable alternative that can basically do what alcohol does without the downsides.
1: Yes, absolutely. Focusing on the, the, the sociability, really getting people together because that is really why most of us use alcohol. Sociability, really, if we can achieve that with a herbal drink, uh, you know, that um, it comes in, in and is similarly priced to alcohol. And tastes as nice as alcohol or, or or can be mixed with other other mixes that you enjoy then then you know then people have a choice and that that's all we want i mean you know, as I, i'm probably gathered i'm a bit of an optimist and I, i'm optimistic that, that there are enough people out there who would make a rational choice if they've got a choice at present they don't have a choice but we want to give them one.
0: yeah so is it is it realistic to think that the drinks industry will embrace new technology like this? Because I, I suppose one thing that I was just going to quickly shove in there is from my relatively scant knowledge of the actual chemistry of alcohol, it is cheap as chips. It is, it, you know, the sort of the alcohol molecule thing that ultimately turns any drink into an alcoholic drink, any flavor into an alcoholic flavor is dirt cheap and margins are therefore very, very high in the drinks industry, therefore, I ching, ching.
1: Yeah, but, but on the good side, it is quite heavily taxed. So it would be perfectly possible for governments to differentially tax, where well, we won't be taxed as an alcohol, as we're not alcohol. So, so we can bring it in at a price which is going to be competitive. And of course, it would be very easy for governments to make it more competitive by increasing the, the excise duty on alcohol so it, it, you could you could very easily nudge the market in the health direction if governments wanted to but let me just say one other thing this the the, the, um, the herbal drink the sentiers they're the first step in a, a program which will culminate in us giving the drinks industry an ingredient which we're calling alcohol which is an alternative to ethanol so ethanol is the active ingredient in drinks at present we'd like to offer people an alternative which is a much less harmful uh, version uh, a much more selective molecule that does what the herbal drinks do and then we can license that to all, all, all companies and then companies can make any drink they like with the alcohol inside without the alcohol inside them and that if that spread worldwide that would be an enormous health benefit t- to so many people
0: wouldn't it just that's i mean that's that's beyond exciting when you think when you think about it. And you know, and and absolutely, you know, forever the forever the optimist. But that's that's the thing. You know, there have to be people out there looking for new ways and trying to improve the pr- improve the current situation. So,
1: well, I spent years of my research life trying to deal with the harms of alcohol, and then realised there were too many and they were too complex. So I spent the last twenty years trying to replace it, and we're getting there. Hopefully I get there in my lifetime, but we're getting pretty close, I think. We just need, we need investment, because we have to take the new small molecule through food safety testing, and that's not trivial. That's millions of pounds worth of testing, but, but we're in the process of raising capital for that.
0: It feel slightly ironic that you have to do that when you are trying to replace something which is so dangerous. I mean, if alcohol was created, if 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 that alcohol molecule and ethanol was invented today and discovered today, it would never, ever be classified as fit for human consumption. It would never get.
1: No, the food standards standard food safety testing of alcohol would say that the maximum per year is half a glass of wine. So it tells you how how blinkered. Seriously. Um,
0: the maximum would be half a glass. Per year. Per year. Wow. Wow. It's I, I just find that extraordinary. Um, but it's, you know, I suppose one of the most visible signs for me that the sort of the shift in alcohol culture is happening is, you know, when I go to the supermarket and I'm walking down the supermarket aisle and that tiny little section that used to be the low or no alcohol is beginning to creep and there are new brands in there all the time. And I, I find that very exciting. I don't drink and... I really, really enjoy trying the different sort of things on offer. I'm also quite excited, not again, as I say, I I don't drink, but I'm excited for those who want to drink the sort of the low alcohol as well, that I think if the alcohol industry start building supposed benefits into alcohol, it'll most likely happen with the very low alcohol versions, you know, 2% beers with such and such a herb, or, you know, whatever, whatever sort of combination of um, minerals, vitamins, whatever, whatever. Um, but but I, the, the notion of there being a complete alternative is very, very exciting. I love that.
1: Well, Anna, when we're ready, I'll get you, I'll come back on your program and I'll, I'll talk well, to I you. Got
0: the, I've got the, yeah, Bob, always welcome back. I would love that. I've got the, um, no, I'm going to be. I'm going to get this wrong. I've got the red one. Is that the berries?
1: The red centia, the berry one. Yeah, that's right.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love it's it. it. It's very, very good. So, all right. So, very, very quickly then, because I just want to leave people with a sense as well of just as I said, you know, you're one of, one of the many reasons I love your book is because ultimately you provide some very practical tips and some tools to um, help people on their way if they're looking at either drinking a little bit less or I think, as you put it, just drink the way they want to drink. You and I would be a hundred percent aligned in the fact that this starts with mindfulness. It it has to.
1: Drinking, drinking,
0: drinking, thinking exactly. So, being being aware right here and now of what your patterns, your consumption, your volume, your triggers, etc., are, and this is all about ultimately raising a consciousness instead of sleepwalking and this this idea of using alcohol as a reflex. Because it really, it really makes me. It, it's it's really interesting to me just the choice of these words. Sometimes you know, a reflex is you know we respond to pretty much many many emotions, many many situations, environmental triggers, company triggers. Oh, I couldn't possibly get together with Bob without having a drink. You know, there's kind of those sort of historical triggers, and they're just they're reflexes. A lot of them, and and, and reflexes aren't even voluntary half the time. You know, they are literally unthinking impulses that's
1: why you've got to be mindful because you've got to reevaluate afterwards and work out never drink a drink that doesn't give you value and, and you that way most people would lose half their drinks
0: yeah okay so to a degree um, in your so in your in your book for example you start you, you talk about th- think about what kind of drinker you are mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose that you would be saying to people, why 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 do you drink i mean i know that can change from one event to another but on the whole why are you drinking what kind of drinker are you do you want to just talk about that for a second
1: yes i mean people drink for different reasons to get high to be sociable to get rid of anxiety no work out why you're drinking and particularly if you're thinking to deal with serious psychological problems don't find some other solution because because alcohol will just make it worse. it dampen it for the short while, but aggravate it after.
0: This is this is something that I'm sort of familiar with in the sort of the concept that if you are drinking for stress, if you if you sit down and you think to yourself, you know, if I'm really honest with myself, why why do I drink? Why do I enjoy drinking? If the answer is because you think it calms you down or takes the edge off after a stressful day, or you know helps keep Stressful thoughts, anxious thoughts in check. Then there's an alarm bell possibly to, to set off here because life gets lifey and stress and anxiety and things like that are a factor of everyday life and it's very easy to find yourself drinking on an everyday level if that's your purpose behind drinking.
1: Find other ways of dealing with that.
0: Yeah, find other ways. So it sounds it sounds a bit laboured, but the notion, I think, of, of keeping a journal... Shouldn't scare people, should it? If they can just be honest with themselves, and I—I
1: I mean, I just say in my book, I say there, there are certain things you, everyone should know about themselves. You know, their weight, their, their blood pressure, their cholesterol. These days, it's blood sugar as well, and also how much they drink. And you should generally always be trying to reduce every one of those.
0: Yeah, and you can't you can't do that unless you know the level from which you start. I think it's you know. It, it sounds obvious and it's of the, the strategist in me as well. You know, you can have a clear sense of where you want to get to, but you need to know where you are. You need to know where you are in order to understand the sort of the gap between where you are now and when you want to get to. And I suppose fear can stop people doing that assessment. Um, the, the cold, hard realization that they are drinking too much. But I think my, my counter to that would be you kind of know it anyway.
1: Yes, and if anyone's ever commented on your drinking, take them seriously.
0: It's a very good point, David. I do truly believe I could probably sit here all afternoon and chat, but I know we're going to have to bring the conversation to a close. You're very welcome back anytime. Um, there's so much we could talk about, but I think you know finishing on those tips and, and tactics are are probably the best place to leave things. I will pop a reference to your book in the show notes, and I will also put a link through to Sentia. And I'm also going to reference drugscience.org.uk. So anyone who wants to go and have a look at your, your work, your independent work can, can go and do that. So David, thank you. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Well, thank you, Anna. And, uh, and also thank you for being so honest about yourself because you know that, uh, that'll give a lot of people the courage to do the same. Yeah, it's been absolutely lovely.
0: Not at all. Not at all. Well, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening and getting curious. Please rate, review, and follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're choosing to listen. And don't forget to tune in to the next episode. And you can find out more about The Big Drink Rethink by heading to my website, thebeliefscoach.com. That's the beliefs, B-E-L-I-E-F-S, coach.com where you will see clear links to the show.